You are listening to Riverhouse Church's Sermon of the Week. We hope this talk equips and inspires you. Well, uh, before I jump into the message, I did want to share one thing. You know, a lot of people uh, this time of year, it's like, you know, what's the, the vision for 2020? I don't have an elaborate vision for what I believe 2020 will look like for Riverhouse, but one thing I do believe uh, is that the river of, of Riverhouse, it's deepening. And, you know, our name is taken from this Ezekiel 47 passage where the water flowed from the temple of God. And it started like a trickle, and then it became deeper and deeper, and then it eventually flowed into the Dead Sea. I think I'm echoing a little bit. Am I? No. Okay. I'm just hearing things. That's my ears plugged. Uh, and it, it, it gets to the Dead Sea, and it actually starts to resurrect the Dead Sea. And uh, what we often miss of this prophetic oracle that was given through Ezekiel is that God was giving an indictment to an over-centralized religious structure. Uh, In that day of Israel, everything was about going up to Jerusalem to the temple of God. That's where God was. That's where his presence was. It was all about the temple. And yet God speaks this prophetic word about a river that starts trickling from the temple, that the further away it gets from the organized religious structure, the more powerful it becomes. And the further away it gets from the, the abode of God's presence, the only place they believed God lived, the more resurrection power started to flow and be released from this river. And we are River House. And we have been in these foundational years of building the house of this church, which is necessary, organized. We have to grow an identity and the DNA of who we are. But I believe that God is in the same way that he was using Ezekiel to be a prophetic indictment, calling the church out of the organized structure and out into a dying world that needed his presence and his power. He is speaking the same message in the United States of America today. The church has been cloistered in our little comfortable zones, and the world around us and the culture around us is dying and decaying. And God is trying to raise up a people that the more further away that we get from the Sunday worship services, the more powerful we become. And the more that river flows, the more life starts to swarm where only dead things once were. And so the way, what what connects us from, from the Dead Sea and the temple, what connects it? It's the river. It's the river deepening. And I believe that 2020 is a year where we are going to learn. And, and we, we've been, there's this groundwork, but we're stepping in and learning to get into the deep waters of the river of God, abandoning control, allowing his leadership to be expressed in our lives so that his power and his resurrection influence can flow through us to actually start transforming the world around us. I believe that tangible expressions of kingdom fruitfulness are coming in our lives through this year. I believe people, and you know, this is, this is outside of, of, of what River House, the structure, the house is. This is in your lives. This is in your workplaces. This is in your families. This is in your neighborhoods, in your communities. We We are a people in the river bringing the presence and the power of God. Amen. Amen. That was better than what you made it sound. Amen. Amen. It's a year of being in the river. So let's do it. Um, I'm going to have you stand. I'm going to read a passage of scripture and then continue in this DNA series, which is essentially the expression of that river within our community. Uh, I'm going to read Psalm 126. We stand just simply to honor that this is the most authoritative word that will be spoken tonight uh, in this room. This is Psalm 126. It says, When the Lord brought back the captive ones of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter, 
and our tongue with joyful shouting. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. Those who sow in tears shall reap with joyful shouting. He who goes to and fro weeping, carrying his bag of seed, shall indeed come again with a shout of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. And that's the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. You can be seated. Uh, We're going to jump back in, and and this uh, sermon series we've entitled Dynamic Paradox, which is essentially we're going through the DNA of what makes Riverhouse a unique expression of church. Every church has so many things and similar, uh, you know, and obviously Jesus is the salvation, but there are unique expressions of grace that God puts on different churches to reveal the manifold nature of who God is. And we've begun a series going through uh, what makes Riverhouse Riverhouse and what makes us who we are, who Jesus is trying to disciple us into, the aspect of himself. And I stated in the, the opening of the sermon that we're not going to do this on principles. We're not going to lay a foundation of, of core values as principles because principles are static and we end up camping around and get stuck around principles. But what we're doing instead is we're going to take a principle and then we're going to connect that to another principle and we're going to create a paradox because all truth is held in tension. And tension, uh, paradox is dynamic. You constantly have to navigate it. And the only way you can navigate a paradox, two seemingly contradicting ideas contained in the same truth, is through dependence upon God and relationship. You actually have to learn wisdom. You have to learn what God is saying and what God is thinking, not just what God has said or who, what God is like. Does this make sense? So last or two weeks ago or three weeks ago before the Christmas, uh, we, we the, preached the first paradox, which was... I knew it. It's like when you go from high school, you got finals, you forget everything you just learned, you know? Intimacy and mystery, right? So it's a, he is a God of intimacy that desires us to know him, deeply know him, see him, become one with him. And he is a God of mystery, and a mystery is simply something that is unknowable, right? So he's a God of mystery, he's a God of intimacy. Tonight, uh, I'm going to talk about suffering and joy. Because <laughs> no. you're stoked on this. Are we awake tonight, Riverhouse? Yeah, Holy Spirit, we just would ask even right now, God, that you would awaken a holy anticipation in your church, that you're gonna speak holy seed from heaven that has the power to transform our lives because your word does not return to us void, but it accomplishes the purpose for which it was sent. God, we thank you for the mystery of this moment, that somehow heaven is touching earth, that there is a king in our midst, that there is a resurrected Lord Jesus who is not distant in the throne of heaven. Somehow you're also here walking in this place, whispering into our ears, God, that you are the most motivating, inspiring, encouraging person that we will ever come into proximity with, that you have the power to change our lives, that one word from your mouth has the power to transform the generations that we are carrying within us. And we thank you that this is a time that you created for us to come into your presence, to hear your voice and be transformed. So who's excited to be in the house of God tonight? So we're going to talk about suffering and joy. 
And, you know, just to give some scriptures to, to kind of break these out, and, and I'm going to build the paradox here for what I'm talking about, because these things are paradoxical. Can I get an amen? All right, who likes suffering? And who likes joy? <laughs> All right. I hope by the end of the night, you will see value in both of these things and see that they're actually extremely essential to us living and following in the steps of Jesus Christ, who is our leader. Uh, you know, so for suffering here, uh, Matthew 16, 24, we're told that we're to carry our cross and follow Jesus. Uh, you know, crosses are on the top of really pretty buildings now in our country, and sometimes we can get alert into thinking that crosses have become really beautiful things. A cross has always been the same thing. It is a cross, and it was created for one purpose, as an instrument to destroy the person that it was assigned to. And Jesus says, if you want to follow me and be my disciple, you will have to carry your cross daily. Pick it up and follow after me. He promises us suffering in Mark 10, 24. In Matthew 5, he says in two of the Beatitudes that blessed are you when you're persecuted. Blessed are you when people slander you and say many things that are wicked because of you. In James, we're told to count it pure joy when we face trials of many kinds, knowing that these trials produce something very valuable in us. First Peter uh, chapter 4, 12, he tells us to not be surprised by the fiery ordeal that you're experiencing as if something strange was happening to you. We are promised suffering in this life. It is a part of, of what it means to be a Christian, a Christ follower, a cross carrier, and, and joy uh, Psalm 16, we're told that in his presence is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. We're told his name's Emmanuel, God with us, that he'll never leave us or forsake us, not even to the end of the age. So if his presence is fullness of joy and he's never with us, he's... amen. Okay, suffering, you're still lingering on suffering, I can tell. In uh, John 15, in this chapter, Jesus actually two times in it says, I have told you these things so that my joy will be in you and your joy will be full. Uh, you know, Romans, the kingdom is peace, joy, and righteousness in the Holy Spirit. That's what heaven's like. It's full of joy. Nehemiah, he says, the joy of the Lord is our strength, right? Uh, all throughout the letter of Philippians, Paul's exhortation to the church is to rejoice in the Lord, right? Joy is extraordinarily central to our understanding of what it means to be a Christian. So joy and suffering have biblical precedence. I could go on and on. I just wanted to choose a few. Uh, and, and the interesting thing is we actually see a lot of scripture passages where joy and suffering are actually very intertwined within themselves. Uh, psalm 16, which I just read about the fullness of joy, is actually the psalm that Jesus references why he's on the cross, because it starts, my father, my father, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is actually, you know, when he's making a scripture of one, he's actually referencing the entire psalm. And Hebrews 12, 2 tells us that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. So while on the agony of the crucifixion, Jesus still knew there was joy set before him, and he knew he won't let me undergo decay because in his presence is fullness of joy. They're very linked, right? John 15, where he makes these explicit references that he's trying to bring us into the fullness of joy is his last message to his disciples before he was going to the Gethsemane. 
He was about to go weep tears and sweat blood, and he's telling them, I'm speaking these things so that your joy will be made full. Very linked, right? The whole book of Philippians, the, the core theme, it's rejoice in the Lord. Paul says it so many times. Chapter four, he says it two times in like three sentences. He wrote that from a prison cell. He was suffering. Paul and Silas, as they were beaten and put in the inner prison, they start worshiping God and rejoicing in him and praising God in the middle of the night. You know, I, I, I trip out on that sometimes because Paul wasn't like reading his own letter being like, oh, I just remember in times of suffering, I need to praise and rejoice in the Lord. No, he, that was what was in their heart that night as they experienced suffering, right? This is the, the disciples after, they, after Jesus had uh, ascended and they were getting in trouble for preaching about his name, they're brought before the Pharisees and they get whipped and stoned and beaten. And it says on the way they start rejoicing because they were counted worthy of suffering for the name of Jesus. Joy and suffering, they're not just both precedents in the scriptures, they're actually very much interconnected all throughout the scriptures, right? So there are, this is a paradox, can we agree with this? Joy and suffering is so vital to what it means to be Christian. Uh, these are some, this is language that we've had, and, and I'm going to break it out so it's a little different. We've had this on website talking about core values, um, but I, I want to go a little more in depth into uh, both the joy and the understanding of suffering. Uh, suffering particularly, uh, I would say, comes from two different places in our Christian walk, uh, the first is, it, is I'll, I'll read this. The valley of tears is where character is formed and God fashions saints out of us. Discipline and testing are good for us because God uses them to make us holy. Right? There is pain in our discipleship because there is a war with the flesh. Right? And without discipline and testing, we do not become holy. It is in the valley of tears that we are forged and fashioned. There is something about suffering and learning to suffer well that is indispensable in the, in, in, in the, the, the course of following Jesus. You, you, you have to follow him. You have to learn how to suffer well in this life. Right? And, it's, and so there's this, the sanctifying process has pain within it because there is the flesh self nature that has to go. And when it is getting disciplined, when God is shining his glorious light and his love upon us, and things within us are being convicted and exposed that have to go, there is pain in that. Because you feel like something is dying, because something is dying, because I've been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives within me. It is painful when the cross is doing its intended purpose, and crucifying everything that resists or squirms or fights against the lordship of Jesus Christ in our lives. We shouldn't be surprised like something bad is happening. No, something very good is happening. The cross is doing its intended effect. So there's pain in our lives because of this. And then secondly, we have language that I'm gonna read. It says, loving the world makes us vulnerable to suffering. As we allow the brokenness of this world to penetrate our hearts with compassion, we weep with those who weep. Right? We live in a world that is so full of pain. And to be a Christian and to be unaffected by that pain, there's, there's, that's, not, that's not congruent. Every, almost every single miracle that Jesus performed, he was moved with compassion. 
Compassion is an uncontrollable desire to alleviate someone's suffering. If you want to experience the power of an uncontrolled desire, hold your breath. And your lungs will start to burn with uncontrollable desire. Jesus was moved with compassion. Jesus was affected by the pain of his world. Jesus wept at Lazarus's tomb. Jesus hurt. Jesus mourned. Jesus was acquainted with sufferings. Jesus was affected. To be Christian, to love the world, to have a heart that's exposed to love the world, we have to be affected by the world. That's what it means to be wholehearted. That's what it means to be agape. That's what it means. We can't walk in our lives and not be affected by the pain of this world because something's wrong if that's the case. We have the presence and the power. We have the river of life that the broken dying are thirsting for. We have to be affected by them. We have to see the pain in their eyes. We have to be slow enough in our life that we can see the ones that are dying right next to us in the cubicle right next next to us at work. We have to have a capacity to see the pain and be affected by the pain. That is what it means to love. We have to be compelled by love. We should be so disturbed because the kingdom is meant to come and it is not yet here. I, I go to other parts of the world multiple times a year where the physical pain is much worse. And it, it, it haunts me. Sometimes people say, you know, oh, how was it? Did you see the miracles? Did you? Yes, but I'm not talking about joy. I'm talking about I feel the pain. I was in schools earlier this year where little kids, six-year-olds, wake up at 6 a.m. and they work till 8 p.m. six days a week. And they're generation after generation after generation of slaves. I didn't, know, I didn't know what to feel. I didn't know how to think. I still don't know what to do. I said, God, how can you expose me to so much pain? We should be so vulnerable to the suffering of this world because we are called to love this world. And it's when we embrace and rejoice in our weakness that is the only way that God's power and his might will flow through us because it's in our weakness that he is strong but it's not until a church feels and suffers and weeps with those who weep that the power of the gospel can go forth. He didn't come as a king. He came as a suffering servant, and that is who manifested the power of God. So there's personal suffering. There's communal suffering, and we will experience it every day of our lives because it's everywhere. We're in a sin-infected, dying planet. It is not sunshine and roses. It is not a walk in the park. It's a war. And they're suffering because of it. And to go back to joy. <laughs> to paraphrase C.S. Lewis, joy is the serious business of heaven. Joy is not a suggestion. It is the very energy and strength that compels us forward in the upward call of God. 
In his presence is fullness of joy. So we have access to a joy that outweighs, outlasts, and overcomes the suffering of this life. We are to be the most joyful people on this planet. You know, I used to be, uh, I used to think that the difference between joy and happiness was that happy, you know, I thought it was because, you know, happy looks happy. Sometimes you can be really serious and joyful. I don't believe in that, right? The difference between joy and happiness is really they look the same on the outside. The world knows joy. Everybody looking, you know, the world creates happiness, but joy comes from Jesus. Joy comes from the most rooted, anchored place there ever was. He is a joyful king. God himself, he, he experiences the agony of suffering, but God is joy. Like he is joy. Just as we could say hydrogen, two hydrogen and, and oxygen creates H, it creates oxygen. God is joy. When you're in his presence, you are breathing in joy. You are being filled with joy. He is a naturally optimistic, joyful person. That's who he is. Right? It's not what God feels like. It's who God is. He is joy. To be in his presence is to be filled with joy. And he is joy right in the midst of all the suffering. Amen. That is a good word. So how do we navigate joy and suffering? Right, one of the difficulties uh, that we actually have in, in, in embodying both of these and holding these intention in our lives is that right now in the United States of America, uh, Brene Brown, I wrote it down so I wouldn't, she says that we are the most in debt, obese, addicted, medicated adult cohort in the history of the planet. In other words, we are living in a very numb society and we cannot selectively numb emotions. Right? So the problem is, is because we have all this pain and suffering and all these things, the, the American adult cohort is a very numbed group of people. And when you numb the bad emotions, right, because nobody's trying to numb joy in our life, we numb all emotions, right? And we create a cycle of emptiness where we don't know how to deal with what we're experiencing, so we numb them more. And we numb them with social media, we numb them with work, we numb them with addictions, we numb them with all types of things. But the numbing of our culture is actually, it's, it's perpetuating cycles where maybe we don't experience the full weight of the pain, though it never goes away, but we also never experience the full weight of the joy either. So we kind of get stuck in this lukewarm middle that is not very powerful and not very productive at all. Right? And so part of the, the issue is we have a church in America that I believe is numb because, and, and joy is actually a, a, a thought. It's something that's kind of out there like God is joy. The joy of the Lord is our strength, right? And it, we say these things and we'll sing it, but we don't actually live a life that communicates, I know the God who is joy, right? And the world is looking for joy. It's searching for the real authentic thing, right? Not something that just numbs us, something that fills us and strengthens us from the inside out. Without joy, we die, without the strength, right? It's not suggestion. It's like, it's like meat, right? You can't just take certain things. Well, vegans can, right? Never mind. Let's do something else. Water. Let's do water. 
right? Water, you can't just remove water from your diet, you die. Joy is like water, it is our strength, it is our vitality, we need joy, right? So we're living in a numbed culture and that creates a, a lot of interesting dynamics, but this is really what I felt the Lord put on my heart. And this may be challenging for some of you, but I believe for a numbed church, for a numbed son or daughter of God, for a numbed person, that is the, the pathway to joy, it's actually to embrace suffering. It's actually to embrace suffering and, and learn how to suffer well. Until the church learns how to suffer well, we won't really know what true joy is because there's something about, it's out on the live wire of the tension of joy and suffering that we find what it really is all about. Right, Psalm 126 says, he who sows in tears will reap with shouts of joy. He who carries his bag of seeds while weeping that's who will bring back the sheaves of joy. I heard a story one time that, that captured what I believe this psalm is speaking of. And it was a story, there'd been a drought in Africa and uh, they had, uh, their, a supply of seed had come to this, this region that had been in drought and they were all starving. And uh, they had uh, each family limited portions of seed. And they said that the parents of these families uh, would have to take the seed, and they were so hungry, they wanted to eat the seed, because they were starving. But instead, they knew if they were to actually work themselves out of this drought and this position of poverty and starvation for their children's and for the sake of their community, they had to actually sow the seed. And so they went carrying the seed with weeping tears down their face, because they were so hungry that they wanted to eat it. But instead of eating it, they were sowing the seed into the dirt. I believe that is a picture of what suffering well looks like. Right? Numbing, what we do when we numb is we eat the seed. God gives us all types of good things. You know, people say, why doesn't America see the miracles that, that, that you see when you go other places? It's because God's joy, it breaks into the midst of our suffering. That's where the desperation, that's where we actually need him. God gives us good things in America but we use them to, and we eat them. We eat the seed. He gives us seed and we eat it. We, we eat it. We eat the seed. We, he, gives us, uh, he gives us this relationship. We use it to try to take our pain away. He gives us, you know, the, we, we, we turn to all of the things instead of him. We eat our seed. We numb out of our seed, right? I'm not here to speak a message that, hey, if you have some addiction in your life or if you're on social media too much or if you're checking out with TV at night or you need a, and you need a beer or two every single night when you come home from work, I'm not here to say that you're, that you're some sinner and that you're going to hell, but I'm saying that you're eating your seed. If you can't sit with the anxiety that comes up and get down to the root of it, you're eating your seed and you're eating your seed in some form. There's something coming to you and you're numbing yourself out. And I'm not here to condemn you. I'm just here to say that you're never gonna get out of this place of starvation until you take the seed that you've been given and you start sowing in the midst and you embrace your pain and you learn to suffer well. It's the people that will learn to suffer well that will actually come into the shouts of joy because these things are interconnected. You know, in Lamentations 3, yeah, I'm gonna preach Lamentations tonight. It says that it's good 
that, that a young man bear the yoke in his youth. It says, let him sit silent and put his ear to the dust. Silence. There's something about silence. When we're in pain, what we typically want to do is we need to go tell everybody about it, and we need to go figure out how to take it away. It is good if you will sit in silence. Put your ear to the dust because your silence is not alone. There is someone there in the silence. And when you can turn your silence into solitude, there is a communion that takes place and you find the God of all joy is right there with you. The key to navigating, in my estimation, the key to navigating this, this paradox, it's presence. It's learning to be present. There's no good days and there's no bad days. There's just days of his presence. But the only way that we can access his presence is by becoming present ourselves. God is always present with our authentic self. He's always present with your authentic self, meaning this, if you are numbing, if you're in denial, you will not be experiencing his presence because you are not being authentic to your true self. If you are experiencing anxiety and fear and all of these things, there's a real experience, there's a real emotional ecosystem going on within you. When you start numbing, you start pushing that away to try to create something else. God is not present here. He doesn't see this. God is present here. And the reason it's good to be silent is because you have to sit here and you have to feel it. You can't eat the seed and try to make the pain. You have to embrace your pain. You have to learn. You have to weep. You have to let. You have to feel. You have to, you have to experience pain. And then God is right there. Right? There's no good days. There's no bad days. He's trying to disciple us out of putting so much weight on our circumstances and into his presence instead. He wants our primary attachment in life not to be people, not to be your spouse, not to be your children, not to be your finances, not to be your ministry, not to be your job, not to be your spiritual giftings, not to be anything but his presence. When your primary attachment in life is the presence of Jesus, you then will have the courage to face whatever life may throw at you. When your primary attachment in life is the presence of Jesus, the one in whom all the joy of heaven is found, you will have the strength and courage to live true in whatever is actually happening in your life, you'll become present. You'll become present. And if you can sow in tears, you'll reap shouts of joy. There are years of my life, literally about five and a half years of so much pain. So much pain. And the Lord would speak to me repeatedly. He'd say, Jordan, I want you to suffer well. So what does that mean? Don't medicate. Don't turn to this. Don't turn to that. He said, come to me. I spent more hours than I care to convey to you, weeping in the presence of God. I learned that when I'm in pain, I'm going to go to him, and I'm going to let him hold me. And I would weep and weep and say, I'm so afraid. I feel so vulnerable. I feel so weak. I feel so, I just, but I learned to just go to him. 
And I look at my life now, and I see, I've seen, I've seen the fruit of the kingdom and promises fulfilled that I never dreamed. And I always can trace it back to, yeah, I remember that seed. I remember that seed. I remember that moment. I remember that time. I remember, right, when suffering comes, we can't hide from it. Because if we hide from suffering, what it does is it actually steals the birthplace of joy in our lives. If we shut down and start numbing, we lose. That's the, also the very place that joy is birthed. God wants us to embody an extravagant, extravagant, extravagant joy. And he also wants us to be vulnerable to the pain of this life. And it is, I, I'm intentionally leaving a lot of room up here that you're going to have to navigate. Do you see that? I'm not trying to give you like a cookie cutter thing. I'm trying to just get you kind of lost and bound in the tension of the mystery here of this paradox that we have to embody both because Jesus embodied both. You know, when the disciples came back, uh, they, he sent them out, 70, and they were healing people and demons were fleeing and they come back to him. I believe it's Luke chapter 10. And it says that Jesus rejoiced greatly in that hour as they gave the reports of the testimonies. And if you did a word study there, uh, the word is that Jesus leaped and twirled. He leaped and twirled. He was a joyful Jesus. He's a joyful guy to be around. He felt, right? He experienced the highs and he experienced the lows of life. But the reality is that the steadiness came because he was always present with the ever-present I am, who never leaves us, who never forsakes us, who gives us peace, who gives us joy, who gives us his voice, who gives us everything we need every single day of our lives. That was Jesus's primary attachment. Right, so if we get out of tension here, and I've seen this, my, my, my uh, because particularly early in my, in my discipleship journey, I experienced so much pain that I was actually kind of out of tension. It was too much suffering and not enough, not enough joy. And what that created in me was uh, discipline without delight. So I was all about, you know, becoming holy and being sanctified, but there was no joy. It was holiness without joy, which that, you should laugh at that. Holiness without joy is the most absurd thing you've ever thought of in your life. There's no such thing. Holiness is full of joy. We rejoice with trembling in his presence, right? But if you go the other way and you, you know, you're kind of separate and there is no suffering, it's all about God wants me to feel good every single moment of my life and I'm, you, know, you, get, uh, you get delight without discipline and you get joy without holiness. And that's just as absurd, right? There's not a bunch of joy. I'm not really joyful in the process when I'm, you know, living in sin and doing all this thing, just eating all my seed and numbing out. There's not joy in that. That's not a real joy. It's not a real joy life. That's not what he's called us to, right? If we lose tension again in suffering, we, get, we become missional. It's all about getting, you know, hurting people out of their pain, deliverance from their bondage, but we, we have mission without rest, right? There's no, uh, there, there's producing the fruit of the kingdom, but there's no room for play, we get serious and we lose our childlikeness, right? And if we're just joy and we're no compassion, right, we have lots of play and lots of rest, but there's no producing, and that's silly too, right? So we need both of these things. They tie us together into an effective, fruitful discipleship, 
right? Because, again, we are tasked to bring the kingdom to a dying world. So if we're to do that, we must bring the joy of the kingdom and manifest the kingdom, but we must also recognize that we are still citizens of earth as well, right? We're not living in the clouds in a hyperbolic, esoteric, joyful thing 24-7, right? No, I'm having extraordinary experiences of joy, but I'm also right there in the midst of a dying world. Is this resonating with you? Right, and, and really, if you stay in this path too long, you will begin to uh, kind of, you'll, you'll get rid of your emotions. Emotions will shut down, and you'll become hardened, and life will be hard, and you'll become almost forbearing, because it's all about suffering, 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 right? And if you get too far over here, it's actually an overemphasis and almost an exaltation of the emotions, and it's all about an emotional epiphany experience of joy, right? So we actually, there, there's, there's tension that we're always having to navigate here, but it's both and. You guys are really quiet tonight. So I want to invite you tonight to actually renew the way that you look at pain and recognize that pain is a gift to a numb church and to a numb culture and to a numb people. And I would suggest to you that the pathway to our country finding freedom is actually from our country embracing our pain and walking into the joy of the Lord. But the only way that our culture will do that is if there's people that are leading the way. And this sounds really, you know, philosophical and awesome, but it's actually really, really practical. If you, for instance, struggle with anxiety, and instead of numbing the anxiety, you, have, you sit on it and you go on a journey, and I'm not saying what that means, what that doesn't mean, but you go on a journey down to the root of what the fear is that's producing that anxiety. You go on a healing journey and you step into the presence of God and you find true joy, which is my story. I didn't wanna live. I was so depressed and full of anxiety, I could hardly sit with myself. I was in such a dark place, I never thought I'd be normal again. I was literally going crazy in my mind. I was so, 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 so lost. And God stepped in there and he began a journey. It wasn't overnight, but bit by bit by bit, he liberated me and I live in such a deep place of peace. Like it's not that anxiety doesn't come, but a deep journey of peace. I now have the ability that when someone comes to me and starts asking and saying things, whatever, I can tell them a very powerful story that could be pertinent to them. Does this make sense? Right? The pain of this life, it's not, it's not, it's not all that bad. We have to stop being afraid of pain. The problem that happens is that defense mechanisms turn on in our lives. We experience pain, we turn on a defense mechanism of fear to try to keep us away from surviving that pain. And then what happens is we keep going on a little further in our life and that pain goes away, but the defense mechanism's still on. And so we start walking around with these little patches of armor on. Patch of armor here, patch of armor there, helmet there, patch of armor, patch of armor, patch of armor. Every time we've experienced pain, we just keep putting on these, these little patches of armor and pretty soon we're walking around clanking when we're so safe. We don't experience pain anymore, but we don't experience anything at all, and we still can't, because we, ha we can't live our lives afraid of pain. 
Jesus came and said, hey, church, I'm gonna face the worst of it so that you don't need to be afraid. When pain starts coming, just know in my presence is fullness of joy. I'm gonna bring resurrection. I'm gonna bring healing. I'm gonna bring life from the dead. I'm gonna bring goodness where you can't see it. You don't need to be afraid of pain. It doesn't matter. No one can reject you or persecute you or say enough bad things or kick you down or steal your money or stab you in the back enough. There's no pain that can keep you down. The only thing that can keep you down is if you let fear take a root in your life and you shut off yourself and you start numbing out so you don't have to experience that pain. But that pathway is the pathway into the joy of heaven because it's right there in the midst. These things are interconnected. We can be like Paul and Silas that even in the worst night, we're rejoicing and the heavens shake and the earth brings deliverance. It's like, he's that good, guys. Suffering and joy, amen? You know, so I just, I don't know if we have, George, if someone can come play music up here, that'd be good, but I just feel like this is actually a moment for some of you in the room tonight, and uh, some of you, you know I've been eating my seed, and there's little, there's little patterns, um, you know, whether it's with food, or it's with, uh, you know, alcohol tendencies, behaviors. Um, there's just, there's little addictions that you have in your life. And you know it's numbing you from feeling what's really going on in your life. This isn't to expose anyone. Um, but I just think this is a moment for some of us, you know. And grace is like water. It flows to the lowest place. So if, if I were to pour out grace, you know, water... <laughs> I thought that was funny. <laughs> if I was to, to pour out, you can laugh when you're convicted. It's okay. <laughs> if I were to pour out water, we would find where the lowest point on the stage is because that's where it would go. And God's grace is like water. It, it, it goes to the lowest place. And the humble in heart will always find it. And so the reason that I will often say, hey, you know, there's a moment you can come and, and, and come forward and humble yourself is because I'm giving you an opportunity to come into a posture of humility so that you can access God's grace. It is not to expose you. It's not to make some type of show out of this. I don't, I don't, I, I'm not, I don't have an ego on how many people come forward. What I care about is you stepping into God's grace and finding the freedom that I believe is available for some of you tonight. So I'm just going to have everybody close your eyes. And if right now there's a tug on your heart and you just know like there's there's some, a, a numbing behavior, whether it's an addiction or a, a relationship with work or just something in your life where it's like, I, I've been afraid. Like, I've been afraid of pain, and so I've been numbing out. I feel like there's actually grace for you to encounter the heart of Jesus tonight, and I'm going to invite you. You can come forward, and I just believe the presence of God is just, he's just resting here tonight, and he's going to come, and he wants to bring mending to some of you. He wants to, he wants to actually strengthen some of you with a fortitude that you didn't know uh, that you could even have. Like, he, like, like, like you've been running from the, this past and these things that, that scared you or this anxiety or these feelings. And, and God's like, I am a lion of the tribe of Judah and I am with you and I am inside of you and you do not need to be afraid anymore.
It's like that movie, you know, Lion King, where Simba could never go back to face his past because he was afraid of those hyenas and he was afraid of facing his uncle and he was afraid of what he'd done. But Mufasa came to him in the clouds and said, you are my son. Don't, don't for, forget who you are. Remember who you are. You have what it takes to face anything that life throws at you and to overcome. And so I thank you, God, tonight that these are your sons and daughters, God, that you called them by name, that you created them for freedom, God, that you set them apart from even before their mother's wombs, that you know every hair that's on their head, God, and that you created them for freedom. We just speak freedom tonight over your church, God, over your sons and your daughters, and we just, we just lay these things down. God, we just lay these things down, God. We lay down, we lay down, God, as social media habits, God, in, in any, any substances, God, that we're using, God, any behavior patterns, God, anything that we're doing to check out, any patterns in our life of numbing, we just lay these things down. God, we ask that you would make them bitter, bitter to our taste, God, and that you would awaken within us just this, just this new hunger and this new thirst. God, we ask for the grace of heaven to just abundantly pour out right now, God, for, for the fullness of your joy to just abundantly pour out tonight, God, that we are courageous, God, that you would strengthen us with joy right now. Just strengthen us with joy, Jesus. No, we can't cause change in our lives. But what we can do is we can put ourselves into an environment where change happens. Like we can't cause a seed to become a tree, but we can put a seed into the ground. And somehow it's in the ground that a seed can become a tree. And, and tonight, I just feel like that, that's the posture. Like God doesn't need you to say, hey, I, I promise I'm gonna change or, I'm, or, or make these, these things. God's just saying, I just want you to put yourself, it, like just yield, like the seed into the ground. Just, just, get, just abandon yourself to God and just say, I put myself here. And I feel like God's actually, he's gonna, he's gonna be whispering. We're just gonna spend some time. I'm gonna have the worship team do a song, but he's gonna, he's speaking and he's giving you some practical things, like he's gonna, like, like practical things of what you need to do or what you need to get rid of or how, like, I just feel like he's gonna, there's just ideas that are gonna come and God's gonna speak to you. Tonight, he may speak to you in the near future, but God's just gonna begin to, to restructure and he's gonna give you grace. As you just humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, he gives grace to the humble. And that grace is his presence, it's his wisdom, it's his empowerment. Oh, I just thank you, Jesus. Just break off anxiety tonight. God, break through. God, patterns and of just stuffing and numbing. God, we just declare freedom. Thanks for listening to the Riverhouse Podcast. For more information, visit riverhouseministries.com.